so um, here's the thing. I want you to imagine that you are a young man or a young woman in their 20s, okay? For some of you, that's been a long time, so it might be really hard for you. But for others, not so much. Imagine that you're a young man or young woman in your 20s and you have a business opportunity. A business opportunity that you think uh, will really yield some pretty cool stuff. But it's a risky opportunity because this business opportunity is going to require you to invest a million dollars of money that you don't necessarily have. And you've lined up the investors to borrow this money, but you realize that you're going to be on the hook. And this business venture is a huge risk for you because it might go belly up and you really will have no way to repay these investors should this happen. Now, so imagine that you're there, you're thinking, should I take this risk? Should I not take this risk? Now imagine that you're a young person in their 20s with this business opportunity. It's very risky, but you have a father. Your father is worth a billion dollars. Your father loves you very much. In fact, his whole life, your father has poured this love into you, his faithful commitment to you. And you know that regardless of what happens, your father will always love you and he will always help you. All of a sudden, your million dollar risk seems pretty easy, doesn't it? seems a lot easier to take a million dollar risk. Now imagine this scenario changes just a little bit. You still have a million dollar risk. You still have a father who's worth a billion dollars, but you don't know or like your father very much. Your relationship with your father is strained at best. He's repeatedly disowned you multiple times in your life to take you back later. You don't get along with your father and there's no sense in which you feel confident that should this business venture fall flat on its face, that he'll help you. In that light, doesn't that opportunity look a lot riskier? This opportunity looks a lot riskier when you don't know what your father's going to do. I want you to know today that in that scenario with these two dads, God is the number one dad. God is the number one dad. You see, that the truth is that our life, especially for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, our life is full of risks. It just is. It's, life is full of risks and challenges. But the, also the truth of the matter is, is we have a father who owns the entire universe. He's got all the wealth and power in the entire universe. And it's true that that Heavenly Father is lovingly committed to us. He's lovingly committed to us. All right, so we're in a series in Ruth, this four-week series for the month of August that builds. If you missed messages one and two, you really need to go online and listen to those. Because a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today is built on what happened in Ruth chapter one and chapter two. And next week, as we look at Ruth chapter four, it'll build on these. And so I just want to encourage you, get your ear on a message so you know what's going on. But in a brief summary, we've built it this way. In Ruth chapter one, we saw that God is sovereign. Naomi knows he's sovereign. Naomi thinks her life is awful. In fact, she mentions, Naomi, that, uh, by the way, my husband died, my two sons died, and left me just with daughters-in-law. I have no grandchildren, I have no heir, I have no one to take care of me. God's made my life bitter. Naomi recognizes that God is sovereign. In week two, we saw that God is not only sovereign in Ruth chapter two, 
we saw that God has this incredible love for us. And last week, I said it, this phrase over and over again. God is faithfully, faithfully and lovingly committed to you even when you can't see how. I said, it, oh, I said it like 12 times, okay? God is faithfully and loving, committed to you, even when you can't see how. And we begin to, I begin to introduce you to this concept of Hesed love. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Today, we're going to build. So we saw God is sovereign. God is kind and loving. Now we're going to build on that, and we're going to see that this kind love of God enables us to act. See, God is not only sovereign and he's not only kind, but that forms the base for us to move and act in this world. If there's a phrase that I want you to remember from this week, Richard's going to put it up there. It's this one. Trusting in God's hesed love compels us to take risks and it roots us in righteousness. Because of God's hesed love, we move towards action without being moved from righteousness. Hence the title, moving without being moved. God's love always causes us to move towards action and risk without being moved from our stance and righteousness and Christ-likeness. Last week, we did talk about this concept called hesed love. If you're not familiar with this phrase, I used it a lot last week. And hesed love is simply this. It's a relationship-driven love. There's no word in English for the word hesed in Hebrew. So I use the word hesed because there's no real good word in English to cover it. The word hesed is not just love. It's not just ooey gooey, I feel nice. It's not just, it's this faithful, committed, relationship-driven kind of love. There's this, a lot of times your Bibles will use the word loving kindness. There's this loving kindness that's true. There's this, this love, but it's a kindness that pours out and it's all based on relationship. This, this love is amazing. It's all the more amazing when we don't expect it. That's what happened last week. Naomi didn't expect this. She thought God was done with her. She thought she was, God had made her life bitter and she was going to die soon because she wouldn't be able to care for herself and her life was just going to be miserable. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we see this hesed love of God for Naomi and for Ruth. Uh, Wednesday night, we're discussing Ruth, uh, the sermon series in our life group. Uh, I'm posting discussion questions every week online. So if you're a life group leader and don't know what to do with your uh, life group, um, I would just encourage you to go look at those discussion questions and follow up with the message. It's, uh, I think it's been fun for our life group, but I'm writing the questions and preaching. So, you know, hey, <laughs> I guess I get to say that. You can pull them later to see whether they like it or not. Anyway, but so... Uh, one of the things that happened Wednesday, we were talking about this unexpected kindness, and we were talking about times when there's been an unexpected kindness in your life, a time when, when you just unexpectedly had something happen, and we were all sharing this, and uh, my six-month-old daughter, Olivia, was screaming for like two hours. I mean, it was torture, and uh, she just was done. Clarissa had had enough. I'm trying to lead, and it's hard to deal with that, and we were just both at our wits' end, and so as life group leaves... Joy Greer comes up to me and she says, oh, by the way, I'm taking Olivia for an hour. Go on a nice long walk with your wife. I'm like, okay, where's the car seat? Please, you know, here you go. I mean, she blessed my socks off because it was, so, it was totally unexpected. Clarissa and I went on this nice long walk. We, we reconnected. We're like, oh, we're married. Wow, this is pretty cool. And I was just totally unexpectedly blessed. That's just a tiny, tiny picture 
of this relationship-driven love that God has for you and me. For some of you, it's difficult for you to see that God not only loves you, but that he's faithfully committed to you. It's, for some of us, it's difficult to see that concept. It's hard. We wrestle with it and we think, God, I, I mean, I know you're sovereign, but it's hard for me to latch on to this idea practically that you actually are committed to me. Some of you, that's just like that because God just seems far away. We talk about having this relationship with God and you go, huh? That doesn't make sense. Some of us, you know, for some of us, something bad has happened in our life and we've pulled away from God. And it's hard for us to see that God is this kind, faithful, relationship-driven person who loves us. Some of us, our earthly father was so lousy that we can't even imagine a a heavenly father that, that loves us. Our earthly father just stunk it up big time, you know? And it's hard for us to imagine that. I think if you feel any of these ways, that it's hard for you to imagine a God who is faithfully and lovingly committed to you, um, you can relate to Naomi because she's learning the same lesson. She learned, she knew that God was sovereign. She's learning that he has this hesed love for him. And then now in Ruth chapter three, she's going to show us and she's going to see that God's sovereign loving kindness gets put to action. And we're going to see this hesed love of God working in action today. So I want to look at Ruth chapter one together. I want to dive in. And I want to take this main thought, this, this idea that trusting in God's hesed love compels us to take risks and roots us in righteousness. I want to split that into the two phrases of the thing. The first thing that God's hesed love does for us is that it compels us to take risks. God's hesed love compels us to take risks. Now, in chapter 2, if you're looking in your Bible with me, in chapter 2, what we saw here is, is that we saw that Ruth met Boaz in a field when she was gleaning. Last week, we looked at what gleaning was and how God provided for poor, the poor, uh, the widows, the orphans, the aliens. He provided in that way to go into a field and glean the leftovers. And Ruth is gleaning. And we saw that she just happened to land in the field of Boaz. And, and the author of the, Ruth is letting us know there's no coincidence there. And uh, so Ruth meets Boaz, and Boaz blows Ruth away. He just like, I mean, for this person who's just poor or whatnot, you know, Ruth should not have been taken care of like this. She walks back, she comes home to Naomi at the end of the day, just with grain heaping on her shoulders. I mean, tons and tons and tons of grain that she should have never got in gleaning this way. And so all for the first time when Ruth returns home to Naomi after this interchange with Boaz, All of a sudden, Naomi goes, wait a minute. This didn't just happen. I mean, what are the chances of her landing in a field and this guy showering her with blessings? Like, this doesn't happen. Maybe God's not done with us after all. Maybe he's up to something. And for the first time in the book of Ruth, Naomi has hope. She, for the first time, she has hope that her life isn't going to end this pitiful, pitiful, miserable existence. For the first time, she has hope. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. Naomi starts to dream. I love this. She's, One day, Naomi, her, her mother-in-law, said to her, talking about Ruth. Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, shouldn't I, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? For the first time, we see Naomi 
planning. She develops a plan. She's seen that God isn't done. God has a loving kindness for her and he's not done. So she's ready to act. Now compare chapter 3 verse 1 back with chapter 2 verse 2. In chapter 2 verse 2, Ruth is the one that suggests to Naomi that maybe she should go glean something so they don't starve. Right? In chapter 2 verse 2, Naomi is sitting on her butt, depressed and wallowing in misery, not even able to act. But look at what happens in chapter 3 verse 1. Now all of a sudden, Naomi has hope and she begins to act. Naomi dreams of a better life for Ruth and for herself. Isn't this true? That when we have hope, we dream, we plan. But when there's no hope, we don't dream or plan. When we don't see hope, we don't see the point of moving on. When we don't have any hope, it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to do anything. It's hard for, to care for anyone else. It's hard to get our minds off ourselves. Why do people do selfish things? Why? I mean, sometimes our culture is just driven by people who are acting in their own self-interest. Why do people do selfish things? It's because they've given up hope that there's a God that cares for them. So they have to work hard themselves to make it happen. They've given up hope. They're going to swindle or put themselves first or do things that are immoral and wrong. Because they've given up hope. Hope is paralyzing. Or a lack of hope is paralyzing. It's hard to move. But when men and women hope in the loving kindness of God, you need to know today that they take all kinds of risks. Men and women who hope in the loving kindness of a sovereign God are able to take all kinds of risks in life. If you trust in God's hesed love for you, you can take a risk. Trusting in God's Hesed love compels us to take risks because we know who He is and we understand He's sovereign and we understand that He he has His glory and our good in mind. And when we understand this, we can take all kinds of risks because we know we have a Heavenly Father who owns the universe. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us and He's always there. Naomi comes up with a pretty risky plan. In verses 2 to 5, Naomi lays out her plan to Ruth. For the first time, she's planning and strategizing. And here's Naomi's plan. She knows that Boaz is interested in Ruth. Boaz would not have sent all this grain back with Ruth if he didn't, wasn't interested in her. So Naomi's like, okay, Boaz is interested. So she needs to find some time to get Ruth and Boaz alone together, which is hard in, in a culture like this because you didn't just send them out on a date to Granite City, right? I mean, this is not what happens. You don't get men and women. It's very hard for them to find alone time together. And she knows, Naomi knows, I've got to find a way to get Boaz and Ruth some alone time. So she tells Ruth to clean herself up. Now, some people have thought Ruth might put on a wedding dress here and, you know, make her intentions like ridiculously obvious. I don't think that's what's going on. I think that Ruth had still been in her mourning clothes over the loss of her husband and the loss of the bitterness of life. And Naomi tells her, okay, listen, the time for mourning is over. Take off your mourning clothes, clean yourself up, put on some nice clothes, get yourself clean. Then she says, tonight Boaz is going to be on the threshing floor. Now, if you remember, there's a two-part process in harvesting barley. The the women would go into the field and they would cut the stalks down. 
And they would hand it over to the men. The men would collect it and put it on the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a big floor where you'd take the, the, the grain and you'd, like the, with a big fork or a pitchfork, you'd just throw it up in the air. The fr- threshing floor, floor was usually on a very open, windy place. And when you'd throw it up in the air, the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall to the ground. And this, this is the way you separated back in biblical times. We, they didn't have combines. They couldn't do it for you. And so, the, and so she knows that Boaz is going to be out alone on the threshing floor, threshing out his grain. And so he, she says to Ruth, this is your time. She knows that Boaz is going to be in a good mood because uh, it must have been a good harvest. And he's going to have all this grain and he's, it's going to go well for him. And she figures he's probably going to have a chance to, you know, when he's done working, to sit down and have uh, his fill of food and drink. And he'll be in a great mood and he'll go fast asleep. And so she tells Ruth, so you're going to go there tonight and you're going to watch him until he falls asleep. And then you're going to uncover his feet and you're going to lay down there and wait. And this is her plan. Now, people who feel like victims, rarely make plans. It's just true. If you feel like you're a victim in life, and you just settle in victimhood, you rarely make plans. Naomi is done being a victim. She's operating, she's done operating from fear. Now she makes plans. And I want you to see here today that Naomi's plan is crazy, okay? I mean, like, it's crazy. And it is filled with risks, Most of the risks, there's some for her, but most of the risks are for Ruth, the person she's sending. I mean, Naomi's plan is basically it's a marriage proposal. She's basically getting Boaz alone and she's going, here I am, I'm yours, take me and marry me. I mean, that's basically what she's doing. And there's tons of risk for her. I mean, Ruth could go down and and lay at his feet and Boaz could go, what are you doing, woman? Get out of here. Or she... You think you, a foreigner, could marry me, a wealthy Israelite? You're crazy. I mean, he could have mocked her. He could have treated her poorly. And friends, um, this passage is filled with innuendo, okay? I mean, it's just chalked with it. I'm going to try to keep it PG today here, uh, you know. But it's chalked with innuendo. And, And Boaz could have taken this thing by Ruth here and taken it as an advance, and, and the risk here for, for Ruth was that he could have condemned her basically as one of those women. One of those kind of women. He could have shamed her publicly. He could have announced her name and what she did. He could have taken it. Or on the other side, he could have taken it in advance. And he could have totally taken advantage of her. I mean, they're alone on the threshing floor. Who knows? He could take advantage of her. And then he could condemn her as one of those women. Naomi could have been rushing things, you know? I mean, there's a risk for Naomi is that, that you know, she's moving too fast and Boaz isn't ready and she could rush this whole relationship thing and Ruth could, could get in there too soon and they could, it could all blow up in their face. There's a lot of risk, especially for Ruth. But look what Ruth says in verse 5. I will do whatever you say. This woman's got some courage. This woman's got some courage. Ruth is willing to risk because she understands that she worships a sovereign God who loves her. 
You see, there's the truth of God's sovereignty. That it should compel us to risk, not relax. Naomi's plan is risky, and she's asking Ruth, really, and remember, Ruth is Naomi's only family at this point. She's asking Ruth to accept this risky plan. Naomi doesn't choose a safe plan. She chooses a strategic plan. And don't miss that. She does it because she now believes in the sovereign, hesed love of God. I wish more Christians would choose strategy over safety. I wish more Christians would choose risking something over relaxing. Generally, the Christians I know, myself included, tend to choose safety over strategy. We tend to choose safety over risk because we like to control things and make sure things will end out like we plan and we know. Uh, A while back, I was speaking at a Christian school and uh, I was walking into the school and talking to some people. And I love speaking at Christian school. It's a fun thing, especially because when I speak at a Christian school, I can offend everybody. And the worst thing that will happen is they won't ask me back again. And so, you know, that, that's, it's awesome. It's a lot of fun. And so uh, I'm going, I'm just talking to a few of the parents that are volunteering there today. And, and the one parent says to me, hey, you know what? Got a pastoral discount four kids, you know, you should think about bringing your kids here. And I said, you know, this is a great school. I love what's going on. My wife and I have chosen a strategy for our children. The strategy for our children is to put them into a public school where they can build relationships and they can show the love of Jesus to everyone they meet. And I was like, and my kids are doing this. It's amazing the relationships they're forming. And, and, uh, and I just love what God is doing through our kids. That woman looked at me like I was from Mars or something. Like, it just, she couldn't understand why I would put my kids in a dangerous place like that. This is not a mantra about where or how you should school your kids. My, my life group is half homeschoolers, right? They'll all crucify me for this. It, it, this is not a point about where or how you should choose your kids. It's why you school your kids. It's why you treat your kids. Most of us think that the thing we should do most for our kids is put them in a safe environment where no harm could ever come to move, where they take zero risks for the gospel because there's no danger for them. And that's what we think our job as parents is. And I would just say, that's, we wonder why they go through high school and they end in college and, and they leave the faith. It's because they've never had to risk anything for the gospel of Jesus. Because parents, we've hovered over them. I love the phrase helicopter parents. We've all know these parents, right? We just hover around them and make sure that no danger ever encounters them. They never actually have to live for Jesus or stick up for their faith. Some of us choose schooling for our kids based, because we're afraid of the financial burden. We don't want to put our kids in a private school because, you know, that would cost something for us. We're afraid. Or some of us, you know, you know put our, do put our kids in a private school because we're afraid of the secular, secular humanist machine that's out there. And, you know, it'll warp our kids. And we make all these decisions, how we school our kids, how we treat our kids. We make all these decisions based on fear and risk mitigation. And I'm not telling you where to school your kids today. All I'm just trying to point out to you is that you need to think strategically about how you raise your children. Not thinking through fear, but through strategy. That's what Naomi does. She's willing to take risks. Are you willing to take a risk? Not just with your kids. That's just one aspect. How about with your life? Are you willing to take a risk for Jesus? Or have you set your life up 
personally in a way that you never have to, you have to encounter as little risk as possible. I love strategic thinking. I love how Naomi gets strategic in her plan. And she's willing to risk because she trusts a sovereign God. Don't miss that. This doctrine of God's sovereignty compels us to risk, not relax. Some people who grab, grasp hold of this doctrine of God's sovereignty get it all wrong. They become fatalists. Well, if God's sovereign, then I don't have to do anything. Because, you know, with or without me, he'll work it all out. And we become fatalists. So what he's going to do, he's going to do. And I don't have to act. If you view that, if you have that view of God's sovereignty, you've got it all wrong. I mean, Naomi says, well, God's sovereign. I can take a risk then because he loves me. Trusting in God's Hesed love compels us to take risks. It compels us to take risks. In verse 6 through 9, I love what happens here. Uh, Ruth goes down to the threshing floor and she waits. I can imagine her like hiding somewhere, you know, with her binoculars that weren't invented then. But anyway, you know, honing in, watching Boaz, waiting for the right time. She's watching him eat and she's watching him relax. And she watches him go to the far side of the grain pile. And he finally lays down. And when she thinks finally he's asleep, she creeps out of the bushes and she comes up to him and she takes his cloak and she lays down at his feet. And all I know is that, you know, Boaz must have had, either he worked really hard that day or he had some kind of crazy meal because he is out, right? He has no idea that she's there. In the middle of the night, he wakes up and he kicks something and it scares the bejeebies out of him, right? I mean, he goes, whoa, what's going on? And, and he sees this woman lying at his feet. Can you imagine, you know, you're just home, laying in your bed, chilling out. You wake up in the middle of the night and there's some strange woman laying at your feet. I mean, like, what is, can you imagine what's going on through Boaz's mind? Like, whoa, wow. And you know, a lesser man, I think, probably would have reacted on hormones and done something completely different than what Boaz does. Basically, yes, what Ruth is saying is here I am. I'm yours. Do whatever you will with me. Now, but before you think that Ruth is a loose woman, before you think of that, that's not what um, the author of Ruth wants us to think at all. Because what Ruth understands, she understands the kind of man that Boaz is. So not only does she trust God enough to take this crazy risk, she also trusts that Boaz is the kind of man who is utterly committed to the ways of God and will do what's right. She trusts the fact that he's rooted in the righteousness of God. Ruth moves and takes a risk because she knows that Boaz won't be moved from his morals. He's rooted in righteousness. And that's the second thing that I want you to know today. Trusting in God's Hesed love not only compels us to take risks, but it also roots us in righteousness. It roots us in righteousness. Hoping God helps us pursue righteousness. The loss of hope is what makes us steal and cheat and lie and swindle and try to get ahead. Because we don't believe that there's a God who will act on our behalf. So we have to make it happen on our own. Boaz, all throughout the book of Ruth, is painted as a godly man. 
The first time we see him, he's coming in from the field in chapter 2. And the very first thing out of his mouth is, he says to his workers, the Lord be with you. The very first thing from his lips is God. And he allows the poor to glean. A lot of workers didn't obey the law. They just, a lot of field owners said, well, I know the law says I'm supposed to let these poor people glean, but I'm going to make it as miserable as possible. But Ruth ends up, one of the reasons I think she ends up in that field is because she had probably heard that there's a field where they'll let you glean. Boaz is a godly man. He protects Ruth in chapter 2. She's powerless in this field, and he protects her. In order for this risky proposition that Ruth has now undertaken, Ruth has to trust God and Boaz. And she believes that Boaz is rooted in righteousness. So Ruth and Boaz, there they are. They're on the threshing floor. It's midnight. The stars are out. They're all alone. He clearly desires her. She clearly desires him. She's under his cloak. She's at his feet. I don't know how she was laying perpendicular. For, I don't know how she's... It doesn't tell us, right? But all we know here is the scene is painted. Both Ruaz, Ruth and Boaz are rooted in righteousness, though. They clearly understand the standards for purity in the Old Testament are the same standards for purity in the New Testament. Ruth was being strategic and Ruth and Boaz were both steadfast in righteousness. Now look what she says in verse 9. He wakes up. He goes, who are you? (laughs) Right? Who are you? Like, what's going on there? I can't hardly see you. She says, I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Since you are a kinsman, redeemer. Now don't miss this, because there's a word here that you don't see in our, in our translations usually. And you need to pay attention to this. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Translators have a tough time knowing what to do with that phrase. But literally, what she says is, spread your wings over me. Now you ha- the reason it's important not to miss this is because you have to go back to chapter 2, verse 12. In chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Same words. So what Ruth is saying here to Boaz is really important. She's saying, I want you, just like I have come to rest under the wings and protection of the sovereign almighty God, I want you to extend that same protection over me right now. What I'm asking you to do, in other words, is to be the tool through which God protects me and provides. I want you to be the tool of God's love for me. Ruth and Boaz have trusted God this far to get to this point. And now they intend to follow him all the way. Because God's hessed love has rooted them in righteousness. We live in a culture, friends, where feelings rule the day. Where we choose what we choose, we do what we do, because if it feels right, we should do it. If it's the course of least resistance, do it. If two people love each other, it can't be wrong, can it? If I feel sexually neglected by my wife, I can go out and act out as a man how I want to, because she treated me poorly. 
Or for wives, maybe you feel don't feel loved by your husband, so you can go out and seek a man who will give you the love that your husband did, didn't, because you don't feel it. And we live in a culture where feelings rule the day. And oh, that we would be like Boaz and Ruth, that we'd be rooted in righteousness so that feelings don't rule the moment, but what's right rules the moment. Ruth and Boaz have bought into what John Piper calls a strategic righteousness. Their feelings are subordinate to their desires for godliness. Oh, that we could be the same. That we could be people who understand God's hesed love so much that we're completely and utterly rooted in righteousness. Because that's the most important thing. Boaz, in this moment, could have given in to his feelings. He could have. He could have totally given in. But he didn't. Be rooted in your desire for righteousness. Let your desire for what God wants trump your feelings for what you want. If you're not married here today, please wait till you are. Please wait. Because God's plan is so much better than your feelings indicate. And if you're married today, I want to ask you, please keep your desires for your spouse. Be rooted in someone deeper and greater than yourself. Be rooted in God. When I was a youth pastor, um, it's feeling like an eternity ago now. But when I was a youth pastor, I, I loved some of my students. I loved all of them. I loved some more than the others. One of the kids I loved a lot was a kid that came faithfully to youth group but didn't believe in God. And uh, a very interesting kid. Loved his honesty. You know, he'd always tell me that, uh, you know... I, you know, Dave, I hear you say this, but I think this. And we'd have these conversations and he'd keep coming back and, uh, and he'd keep coming back. And, and one day he says, Dave, I'm going to be honest with you. This Jesus stuff that you're talking about doesn't really make sense to me because it just isn't much fun. I mean, he says, I would rather smoke what I want to smoke with my friends, drink what I want to drink. I'd rather run around with my buddies causing trouble I'd rather race cars and do the stuff illegal that I know I shouldn't be doing right now because that feels more fun. And I'd say, oh man, I get it. I get it. I said, you're right. Jesus calls you to more than that. Jesus calls you to something deeper than your feelings. There's a view that Christians have that go, oh, let's say, well, you know, hey, Jesus can be fun. He can't, we can do Christian music good and, and we make a mean strawberry smoothie. Jesus can be fun. So let's, have, let's just have fun with Jesus and we can play these games that are off. My view of saying is you're right. Jesus calls us to more because Christians have settled for what one author I recently read calls living for the minimums. We always say, what's the minimum I can do to be a follower of Jesus or what's more apt the question that we usually ask is what's the minimum I can do to get into heaven but you know what Jesus did Jesus talked about the maximums what's the maximum you can do to love and be committed to God that's what Jesus talked about imagine that as, as a husband I sat down with my wife and I looked her in the eyes and I held her hand and I said Clarissa after 16 years I love you What's the minimum I can do to show that to you? 
not going to go over well, right? I mean, but so many times that's what we do with God. And I want to say, go all in. Take a risk. Be rooted in righteousness and in godliness. All right, I'm going to quickly summarize the rest of the chapter. So there they are, under the stars, in this moment. And Boaz responds positively to Ruth. In fact, he commends her, her kindness. This word hesed, it only actually occurs three times in Ruth, although it paints the entire book. But it occurs three times. The first one is chapter 1, verse 8. And it spoke of God's kindness through Ruth to Naomi. It's about God's kindness to Naomi. And in then chapter 2, verse 20, it's again about kind, God's kindness to Naomi. But here it's different. Here it's used a little differently. Chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This hesed is greater than that which you showed earlier. This is bigger than her kindness for Naomi, which she has. This hesed... Boaz is saying, listen, I'm an older dude. I get it. Because he's significantly older than Ruth. You could have gone after the young man. Or you could have run after this or that. But you waited for me. That kindness. So Boaz protects Ruth. He, he protects her. He comes up with a plan. He heaps more grain on her because he doesn't want her to go home empty-handed. So, you know, for, for two women are starving now. They've got tons of grain in their possession. Boaz tells her then... He speaks honestly. He says, okay, I want to redeem you. I want to be your kinsman redeemer, the relative close enough to marry you and rescue you. But there's another guy who has the legal rights to this. And Boaz is this kind of righteous guy that he's not looking to skirt the rules to get what he wants. So he says, I got to go make it right with this guy first. And then he sends Ruth off. And I love how he protects her, right? They wait and he, he gets her out of there before people can see what happened, before her reputation is ruined. He protects her. And it, we set up this, scene, this, this page for, for chapter four, the, the scene where all of a sudden now there's this tension. Boaz is going to go to this other guy. And what's this other guy going to say? What will happen? You see, trusting in God's tested love roots us in righteousness. It compels us to take risks. It roots us in righteousness. So I want to boil it all down to this. Take a risk. Take a risk. Know that God loves you so much that when you wrap yourselves in the wings of his protection, he won't let you go. He will go with you. Any failure that happens, you can handle with him. So listen to the spirit and do what he asks. Take a risk. And secondly, be rooted in righteousness, please. Some of you today are holding back on God. You're saying, I'll behave as long as it works for me, but I reserve the right to bail on God when it doesn't work out. I'll do what I please then. And I would say, immerse yourself in Christ. Immerse yourself in living for him. Move where he moves. Be unmovable in righteousness. Follow wherever he leads, but never let him go. Where you go, I will go. I say pray our worship team is going to come and we're going to sing that song one more time. Where you go, I go. Would you pray with me?